Good morning, everyone. It's good again to be with all of you this Sunday morning. Yesterday, we had our first of two back-to-back membership interviews. We were uh, backlogged somewhat. We interviewed 13 believers who uh, committed themselves to be members of our local body here at Cornerstone. And next Saturday, we'll be interviewing 13 more uh, believers who desire to be members with us here at our church. Without really a break, we interviewed, we began our interview at 8 a.m. and finished at 1.45 in the afternoon. And uh, the week felt really short until yesterday. And <laughs> yesterday was a blessed but a long day. Uh, I took a nap after I got home and I woke up and I thought I missed service. I thought I missed church. I had no idea where I was at. What a wonderful time we have with these 13 dear, precious saints in Christ to hear of God's marvelous work of salvation and faithfulness and sanctification in their lives was a source of tremendous encouragement. Um, Our hearts were left with just singing praises to God, uh, just giving thanks to the Lord for His mercy and grace, His compassion to His people. We asked Him several questions throughout the interview, and then we closed each time with signing of our membership covenants. Uh, one question that we asked was, uh, why do you want to be a member here at, church, at Cornerstone? Why do you, what does membership mean to you? And they said things like, I want to stand with this body for the gospel of Christ. I want to love Christ through Cornerstone because loving Christ means loving Christ's body. And this is Christ's body to me. I want and I need accountability. And I want to be held accountable for my life by this church. And I want to keep others accountable in this church as well. I want to experience that mutual one another of loving one another, bearing with one another, forgiving one another here at this body. I want to submit myself to Christ by submitting myself to the elders and leaders and pastors of this church. I want to um, make my promises to Christ here at Cornerstone. Another question that we asked was, um, how can we as leaders of the church serve and minister to you? How can we help you and encourage you? And so many said to us, just keep preaching the word. Do what you're doing. Sunday after Sunday, please don't give us a dog and pony show. You know, you're funny, but not that funny. You know, you think you're far too funny than you actually are. Less entertainment, more word. We want to hear from God. We want to understand the scriptures. Keep doing what you're doing. Passionately, faithfully, teach us the whole counsel of God's word. Oh, what thrilling things to hear as a preacher, the teacher of God's word. Uh, The leaders of the church were so encouraged. We look forward to uh, this upcoming Saturday as well. We'll be interviewing again, as I said, 13 more uh, who will be joining our church. And then during communion in the month of March, we'll have our formal right hand of fellowship where we'll publicly welcome them to our church family. Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 
Continuing our study in this dear epistle, precious epistle. Keep your Bible handy because we'll be um, going through uh, several passages together this morning. But our launching pad will be 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I just want to read verse 8 this morning because we have a lot to go through. Go th- we'll read together Paul's first um, main commandment to his son of the faith, Timothy. Verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Stop right there. The command is, do not be ashamed. Your family, friends, the world, the enemies of the gospel are trying to shame you concerning the gospel, concerning gospel people, Christians, Do not feel shame. Do not be embarrassed. Do not sense disgrace, dishonor concerning the word of Christ. Shame is a negative emotion caused by an awareness of actual wrongdoing. Shame is caused by public exposure of guilt. We talked about this for several weeks. How guilt is isolated to oneself. We commit sin. We feel guilty. Shame is the exposure of that guilt to others. It's relational. Guilt is experienced alone. Shame requires someone else. Requires a person or a community. Now again, why this command? A brief review. Why this command? Um, First of all, because shame is such a powerful emotion. Shame in all of us exerts a significant influence to motivate us to do something or to not to do something. Shame is powerful. A week ago, I had an opportunity to watch the Lakers play against the Phoenix Suns. Right? hope that you're mindful of the application that I gave a few weeks ago to be following the Lakers. Right? So if you have, you'll be blessed by today's sermon. They're playing the Phoenix Suns and... Um, Andrew Bynum was out, so they were depending on Kwame Brown to step up and fill the paint and do his work and, you know, meet the value that the team is paying him, $9 million a year to play basketball. I'll do it for, you know, much less, but, (laughs) right, $9 million, right? And he missed two layups and he missed a slam dunk, a wide open slam dunk. Big controversy in Laker Nation because the Laker fans were booing Kwame Brown. Now, I don't know if I was booing or not outwardly, but I was booing in my heart. <laughs> and I think I was booing outwardly as well. Now, why was I booing, right? We can argue and debate whether, whether that's right or not. But I was booing because I want to shame him <laughs> into playing better basketball, right? Maybe he'll feel shame. I tried that last Sunday playing ball with you guys. It wasn't working. Didn't work with Kwame Brown as well. Why right, we do that, right? We shame maybe children that are performing better at school. We shame maybe our husbands to pick up their socks, right? Shame our wives. I don't know. Better meals, whatever, right? We do this because shame is a powerful emotion. It influences us to do something or to desist doing something. Well, the first century world was shaming Christians 
into forsaking Christ. And to some extent, to a great extent, they were successful. Many well-meaning believers, because of the fear of man, because they were riddled with false shame, denied what they knew to be true. They recanted their loyalty to Christ. They went astray. Like, like Phygelus and Hermogenes, as Paul talked about later in chapter 1, like Demas, because he loved the world more than love of God, succumbed to this shame and recanted their love for Christ. That's the first reason Paul, knowing this, is pro, as a proactive shepherd and as a leader, commands Timothy, do not be ashamed. Second reason is because of the culture of the first century Middle East. It was, and still is, a shame, honor, and bragging culture. The Asian culture was and is hypersensitive to shame. Hypersensitive to shame. And that lasts even to this day. To this day, honor and shame are important influences in the Middle East. I read this week an article by Thomas Friedman. A brilliant man, American journalist who's been reporting from Middle East for decades now. Author of several books. The most popular one is The World is Flat. I'm sure many of you have seen it in your, in your homes. Many of you have read this book, The World is Flat. In December 20th of 2006, he wrote a letter to President Bush kind of informing him on how to um, conduct dip- diplomacy in the Middle East. And the title of the article was 15 Rules to Live By when you're conducting negotiations in this area, in this region. I'm not going to go through all the 15. There are some interesting ones. Rule number one was that what people tell you in private in the Middle East is irrelevant. It's the opposite of the West. In the West, privately, they'll tell you the truth. And publicly, they'll, tell you, they'll, they'll lie to the public. In the Middle East, publicly, they'll lie. Privately, they'll tell you the truth. Because of shame. Before others, they'll lie. Go against their conviction and tell people what they want to hear to save face. But privately, they'll tell you how they really feel. In America, it's the opposite, right? Rule number six. In the Middle East, the extremists go all the way and the moderates tend to just go away, right? They just escalate their radicalism to the point where extremists go all out. And moderates, moderates can't stand. Rule number eight, civil wars in the Arab world are rarely about ideas like liberalism versus communism. They are about which tribe gets to rule. So yes, Iraq is having a civil war between tribes, but there is no Abe Lincoln in this war. It's the South versus the South. The final rule, or the 11th rule that he gave, was this, the most underestimated emotion in Arab politics is humiliation. It is something that Westerners do not understand. This is the most powerful and most underestimated emotion in Arab politics. One of humiliation, shame, and honor. People here would rather die than to lose face. Rather die than to be shamed. Arab leaders view any compromise with their enemies, particularly Israel, as losing face. Since such an agreement would mean recognizing as a worthy foe, 
such a blow to Arab honor cannot be tolerated for cultural reasons. Because losing face means utter humiliation, public credibility, and to lose power. So in search of lost honor, Arab elites are not concerned with the welfare of their masses. They are ready and willing to sacrifice people for their own personal honor. What was true in the first century world is still true today. Hypersensitive to shame. They are so sensitive, they look for insults where none exists. Right? Recently, uh, a school teacher who was doing social work in Sudan was arrested, put in jail. She was from England. Threatened with 40 lashes across her back, across her back. Why? Because she was instructing her children about animals. And a student brought a teddy bear into the room. And she allowed her students to uh, name this teddy bear. Out of 23 students, 20 students said, hey, you know, the person who brought the teddy bear, his name is Muhammad, popular first name. Let's name the teddy bear Muhammad. And she did so. No insult intended. But the Muslim radicals viewed this as blasphemy, insulting the prophet of Islam, insulting them, had her arrested, and threatened her with uh, torture, with physical infliction of pain. Through diplomacy, the dialogue, she got out and came back to England. But they're so hypersensitive about humiliation and insult that they, they see it when none exists. Well, this is why Paul commanded Timothy. Because shame is powerful. He was living in a shame-sensitive culture. And the message that they were proclaiming was a shameful message. An utterly shameful message. As we studied for the past two weeks, the cross was an instrument to induce maximum pain and induce maximum shame on the victim. The central testimony about our Lord was that He was crucified on the cross. He was publicly humiliated. He experienced the most shameful method of punishment and death. This was, um, these three were a potent and toxic combination. Shame upon shame upon shame. The enemy knew this, used it as effective weapons against Christians. And many Christians fell under its power and went astray. This continues to this day. One of the sisters yesterday shared her salvation testimony. She was telling us how she became a Christian as a freshman in college. Our family were devoted Buddhists. Her relatives were devoted Buddhists as well. She was so afraid for the first year she lived a double life. She would follow Christ at school but at home. She would wait till 3, 4 in the morning to read the scriptures. She was convicted by the word of God where Christ said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you when the Son of Man comes in all his glory. She sat her family down shared the truth that she was a Christian, shared the gospel of Christ, and their response 
was one of attack, persecution, slander, and insult. He said that her mom started yelling, told her, this is the most shameful thing you could ever do to our family. You have embarrassed us. You have humiliated us. How could you do this to our family? Shame us in this way. Her cousin called her and told her, all the relatives know, you are a disease to our whole family. All our relatives, no one will talk to you. Will you come to your senses? Remove your shame and honor your family. She, by God's grace and strength, stood her ground and is standing her ground. But in the first century, many sadly surrendered to the power of this shame. This is why Paul understands and Paul commands Timothy and Paul commands us do not succumb to false shame. Do not be ashamed. Now as we looked last, last week, it is not as simple as just saying to ourselves, okay, great, now I know what to do. I'm going to not be ashamed. I'm just going to turn it on. I'm going to flick that switch. right? I'm going to have a, just a different response to when people insult me, persecute me for my faith. We know the Christian life is not that simple. It's not that easy. There is a prolonged, lifelong process, a sanctification process that must take place for us to stand against such power in this world. The Bible teaches us that this fight against shame must begin in our minds must begin in our thinking, in the inner man. Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Again, the head to the heart to the hands. New mind affects our affections, changes our emotions, our experiences, and changes our behavior. It's not behavior modification. It's not outside in. It's inside out. And it begins with the mind. Psalm 51, 10 David pray, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right inner man, right spirit within me. Colossians 3.10, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The Bible calls us to renew our minds, to undergo mind surgery, not brain surgery, not a physical surgery, but a spiritual surgery, mind surgery, Removing false thinking, replacing it with biblical truths. And the three-pronged approach was, when we're ashamed, the first response is to, we must invalidate the shame-inducing power of the world. Invalidate the shame-inducing power of the world. A lot of, a lot of points here, right? Under that, six truths. Six ways we can, with which we can invalidate the shame-inducing powers of this world. Really quickly, we need to expect persecution. Be ready for it. We ought not be surprised. Second Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Our Lord told us, if they hate you, remember, they hated me first. 
John 16, I have told you these things, so that when you are persecuted, when you are hated without cause, you will know, I told you so. I prepared you so. The first response, first truth is, we must be ready. We must be prepared. We must expect it. Now that's the first response that family, friends, and this world will give to us. Secondly, when they try to shame us, the Bible calls us to consider their ignorance. This is so helpful. We need to remember that they are in darkness, and the futility of their thinking. They are spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 1. They are blind to the truth. They're walking in darkness. They don't know what they're doing as Christ prayed in Matthew 27. As Stephen prayed in Acts 7 as well, they don't know what they're doing. They're sitting in ignorance. Thirdly, when people shame us, consider their, their shamelessness. Consider their shamelessness. Thomas de Silva said, To be shamed by the shameless is ultimately no shame at all. To be shamed by those who live in blatant sin, live in debauchery, live to please their senses. To be shamed by them is not shame. In fact, number four, being shamed by the world is a badge of honor for Christians. Right? It's, a, it's an honor. It's a blessing. It's a gift of God. Right? In Acts 5, the apostles went away rejoicing that they were considered worthy by God to suffer for the name of Christ. A source of praise, source of exaltation in Christ. So my cheesy illustration about you know, basketball and a girl guarding me, right? So if you're having an easy life, and no persecution, no insult, no slander, God hasn't blessed you. It's, it's a mark of shame that you're living such, like silence is betrayal. That by your silence, you're being a friend of this world. And so there is no persecution. There is no antagonism. There is no opposition. And it should be a source of shame because that's how God views you. That's the reality. But if your life is difficult, if your life is hard, if you bear emotional, spiritual, physical scars because of Christ, that is honor. You're having a tough time. But... God is honoring you. And that honor should be given in the church. That's a study to come. Fifthly, when persecuted, recall the example of Christ and godly people of the past and you'll experience them that Paul sought after in Philippians 3. Right? He sought after the fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. Right? When you suffer for Christ, that's the blessing. You experience this um, nearness of Christ, this joy of knowing Christ in a whole different level because you are experiencing the same thing that he's experienced, suffering for righteousness. That is why these nonconformists who are preaching the gospel by the Roman Catholic Church in the 15th century, they were sent to prison. Edward Colomy said, If you knew the comforts we have in prison, you would all wish to be with us. If you knew the joy of being imprisoned for the gospel, being in stocks for Christ, if you knew what joy there was as a Christian, you would all want to be in prison with us. Because in the prison we're singing, right, just like Paul and Silas, 
We're singing hymns, spiritual songs. We're praying. Our hearts are so tender. Our hearts are so broken. There's such sweetness in our love for Christ. If you knew what we know here, you would want to be in prison with, with us. He said, and he concluded, you are spiritually mad that you would commit sin to avoid persecution. You are mad that you would sin to avoid jail when there is such sweetness in fellowship with Christ and being in suffering for Christ. Finally, when persecuted, preach to yourselves that God is the ultimate and final determiner of true honor and true shame. That honor and shame in this world is all relative. It's all based on culture, right? It's arbitrary. I remember years ago I went to Korea. We were walking down in the summer sun. It was like 100 degrees. And we were college students and we were wearing shorts. And people were looking at us, staring at us. Someone came to us. How can you guys wear shorts? It's like the most shameful thing a man can do. Walk around in shorts. Why are you walking around in shorts? Well, because it's hot, Right? When we know that in Korea, a man walking around in shorts is shameful. We felt no shame, right? We looked at them with shame because, right, it's cultural, it's relative, it's arbitrary. It's not truth. It's not true shame. It's not true honor. True honor and shame is determined by God on that great judgment day. So whatever we experience, understand it's man-made, it's temporal, right? It's relative. It's not truth. Truth is what the Bible says, and God will reveal it on that great day. So that was review point one. The second pronged uh, part of the surgery, biblical mind surgery, is how to respond to the shaming techniques of the world. We must biblically, rightly respond to the shaming techniques of this world. The New Testament advocates one consistent response to persecution. One consistent response to persecution. In the Old Testament, with the theocracy of Israel and direct revelation, you respond to attack by imprecatory sermons, right? You know, dash their teeth, Lord. You know, kill them, shame them, let them die in their own, you know, refuse. Right? Let them be food to the birds of the air, beasts of the earth. That they will know we are your, your, your kingdom. Right? Let my sword dash them to pieces. That's Old Testament. Right? That's not us today. Right? The New Testament advocates just a singular response. And it's summarized in this, this way. Do not retaliate. Do not retaliate. Do not repay. Do not repay evil for evil. Instead, bless them. Instead, love them. Instead, forgive them. Many passages speak of this. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2. We won't study these passages. Actually, we'll go to Romans 12 later. But I want to just share with you, show you that New Testament is consistent in that when we are insulted, slandered, put to shame, this is how we are to respond. One consistent way. First Peter 2.12 Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
verse 15, chapter 2, this is the will of God. That by doing good, objective good and relationally good, good to them, you do good to them. They do evil to you, you respond by doing good. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And Peter highlights the example of Christ that he saw with his own eyes. And the gospel writers tell us that Peter was an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ. He was in the courtyard when Christ was tortured and persecuted, spat on and shamed. And Peter relates this, and that this was Christ's response, Christ's example when he was persecuted. To this you are called, verse 21, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Go to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one, one to Christ without a word, by the conduct of their wives. When these husbands see your respectful and pure conduct, You'll win them over by your lives. Don't retaliate. Be respectful. Be submissive. Be pure. And down in verse 15 through 17, in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they will be put to shame. They will be ashamed. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Turn to Romans 12, 14-21. I read those passages in First Peter just to show you it is the consistent teaching of the New Testament Scriptures. We'll go through this text in Romans 12 and consider these very difficult commands. Very difficult commands. It's against our human nature. It's against our flesh. It's against my blink response. Someone insults me and I want to insult back. And someone cuts me off on the freeway, or even in my little community, man, I want to, right, speed up and, sh- you know, at least give them a look, like, you cut me off, right? Our in- instinctual response, right, even within the family, is to retaliate. It is almost, it is impossible, it is impossible in our flesh to do otherwise. But Christ, com- the Bible commands us. Romans 14, look at verse 14. This verse summarizes how we are to respond. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. The obedient Christian not only must 
resist hating and retaliating against those who harm him. The obedient Christian is commanded to take the additional step of blessing them. Continue to bless. Do not be provoked to anger or to cursing. This is one of the most severe and difficult duties of the Christian faith. And again, it is a duty which is impossible apart from Christ. To curse denotes properly to devote to destruction. That if you have the power to do it, that you would destroy it. Remember Christ, Matthew 21, he cursed that fig tree and it withered immediately. It's an imprecatory prayer, a petition. God, destroy this thing. Destroy this person. That's what it means to curse. Do not petition God. Do not speak or pray to God to destroy. Do not implore a curse from God to rest on others. Those James and John, sons of thunder, these people are coming to them. And they said, should we ask God to strike them down with lightning? And that is not how you are to respond to insults and slander. Instead, you are to respond by blessing them. Literally uh, thanking God for them. Praising God for them. Praying for them. Petitioning on their behalf. And then a little bit of a side note in verse 15. I believe verse 14, he's talking about outsiders, outside the church. Verse 15, Paul is addressing those who are within the church. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This command, I believe, grows out of the doctrine stated in Romans 12, 4 and 5, that the church is one. How is this related in its context about persecution, being mistreated because of one's faith? I think in this way, if you have believers in the church who are not being mistreated, who are not being slandered or insulted for their faith, in fact, their family members are believers, or they're coming to faith in Christ, and they're encouraging one another, and there is such blessing in their lives because their closest people in their lives are are godly men and women. Don't be embittered. Don't get discouraged. Don't isolate yourself. Rejoice with them. While your needs aren't being met and you see others being blessed, you, you genuinely, in the church, you rejoice with them. Now, on the other hand, you are that person. Every, every single family member is a believer. Right. You're surrounded by just believers at work. Heard of a sister at our church. All her coworkers are believers. Our team at our workplace are, are, are devout Christians. She goes to work and she has fellowship with them. And you meet someone who are struggling, who are being persecuted for their faith, genuinely have compassion, have empathy. Weep with those who weep in the church. Without partiality, verse 16, without showing favoritism, without dividing the church, Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Weep with those who are weeping. Verse 17, back to the world. Repay no one evil for evil. 
but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Do not repay them. Now, keep your finger in Romans 12 and turn to Matthew 5.38 because Paul gets this doctrine from Christ himself. He's not um, coming up with this, these instructions. It comes from Christ's first sermon on the mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. We'll spend some time here. A solemn demand made by Christ that must be obeyed. Matthew 5:38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a command found in the Old Testament law, Exodus 14, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. It was given as a rule to regulate the decisions of judges in the nation of Israel. It was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, burning for burning. As a judicial rule for Israel, it was just. Christ finds no fault with this rule as applied to judicial officers. Our Lord here does not repeal this law for the nation of Israel. But the Jews, instead of confining it to official matters, they extended it to private conduct and made it the rule in which Jews can take vengeance, take revenge, retaliate against others. The rule was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, burning even for burning. Our Savior protested against this. He declares that this was only for judicial law, official law over Israel, not for personal personal matters. The eye, the if one slaps you. Um, verse 39, if anyone slaps in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. People have used this to advocate pacifism as a Christian doctrine. I don't have time to go into this about just war. Christ is not speaking literally here. He's using a metaphor. Slap in the face, and we use it in our modern day uh, um, communication as well. Now, what he said to you was like a slap in the face. That person, the way she treated me was like slapping me in the face. We use it as a figure of speech, as a personal insult. That is how Christ is using this figure of speech. If someone insults you, shames you, do not retaliate. Do not repay. Verse 40, if anyone sues you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. They want your jacket, give them your shirt. Do not let material things hinder your conduct as a Christian, conducting honorably in the sight of all. Do not hinder the gospel because of material things. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, carry something for you for one mile, one mile in in Israel was a thousand steps, and take 2,000 steps. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
And then down in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was not the command. The command was, love your neighbor. The Jews interpreted it as, if I love my neighbor, that means I have the right to hate my enemies. Christ says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Lord, that is impossible. I feel hatred, animosity, Nothing but vehement anger towards my enemies. How can I love them? Christ is speaking of love not as an emotion. It's not phileo. The word's not phileo here. Brotherly love. Deep affection. The word he uses is agape. Volitional love. Voluntary choosing love. It is action. Though you feel hatred, you do good deeds. Though your heart is full of anger, When you respond, do not repay evil for evil. Pray for them. Bless them. Do good unto them. Love them as I have loved you. The reason is so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He loves the evil and the good. He sends rain to everyone. Common grace to Christians and non-Christians. The righteous, the most wicked person in the world experiences the common grace of God. By us doing this, we are truly children of God. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Verse 46. Do not even the task collectors, the ones who have betrayed the nation of Israel, do they not do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? You're not light of this world. You're not salt. You're not standing apart. Even the Gentiles who do not know the law of God do the same. As Christians, we are to love our neighbors and also love our enemies. And in this way, we are complete under the law. In this way, we'll fulfill the law and we are mature. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Loving enemies, being patient, humble and meek when attacked, persecuted. This is imitating God. This is true religion. This is being complete. This was Christ's first sermon. Based upon this, turn to Romans 12. Paul says to the church, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Not just before God, but respond in a way that it will be seen as honorable before Christians and non-Christians alike. The Greek word is uh, kalos. There's two Greek words for good, agathos and kalos. Agathos, you know, agatha, it's the objective good, like truth good. 
kalos is subjective good. Maybe a better word is beautiful. In relation to others, it is beautiful. Act in this way. Act in a way where your family members will see it, your friends will see it, and they will see it as subjectively good. You know, I know that I, you know, I tell these few stories in my life, and you know, they're kind of repetitive, but they are, they're appropriate for the, the subject. So I share it, share it again, and if it's um, familiar to you, and then apologize. You know, one of the first, you know, the first time, you know, um, I was persecuted for my faith was by my dad. When I shared with him that I was going into ministry, and my dad was a very, you know, one of the first class of military police officers in South Korea, and bad, bad temper. He lost his temper, got angry, and he hit me several times. Now, my dad hit me all the time, because I deserved it. I mean, I really deserved it. That was the first time in my life I got hit without deserving it. It was... It's an amazing experience to receive you know, pain and then be inflicted pain, but it was for righteousness. Um, and he told me, James, you know, how can you shame us and how can you be such a bad son? Promise that I'll be a good son. The only way I can be a good son is by following Christ. Well, years after that, his heart was still close to Christ, but I learned this principle. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. Not in the honorable sight of God. For me, reading my Bible was not beautiful in the sight of my dad. For me, evangelizing, going to church, doing ministry, wasn't pleasing to my dad. What was pleasing to my dad was when I helped him at the store, when I called him and talked to him on the phone, when I did errands for him, when I would... When he would request, even before like his friends, I would show him honor. We're at a wedding one day, and um, we're at a reception. And you know how Korean weddings, reception, everybody runs for the food. And a long line develops. Oh, my wife and I, just by God's grace, you know, God gives us grace once in a while. We got food, and we brought it to our parents. But, you know, they were sitting down because the line was so long. Before all their friends, my wife and I brought them food for them. And they were so honored before their friends. They were, and all their friends were like, man, what about my kids, right? They're eating over there, right? And we, we're doing this to honor them personally. Because for, the, for my dad and mom, that's honor. Not me doing, doing it for the Lord, my prayer life or word life or doing ministry, but to them. And that's what Paul is saying. And that's what Christ is saying. You do this and you'll open their hearts to the gospel and many of you know, by God's grace, my, my dad came to faith several years later. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. Doing what is beautiful in their eyes. So we need to figure out, how can I serve them, love them, care for them, in the way they will interpret it as love. Verse 18, Paul continues, If possible... As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Right? So if it depends on us, it's peace. If they will not have peace. That's not our responsibility. 
We're not to be enslaved by the opinions and views of others. We're enslaved to Christ's opinions. But if it's up to us, we are seeking to be at peace with all. And then finally, Paul comforts us for those who are being unjustly mistreated, who are suffering dearly for their faith in Christ. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It is written, Deuteronomy 32, 35 and 36, God declares, vengeance is mine. I will be compense. Don't take the law into our own hands. Don't try to make the scales equal in terms of how much we hurt, we're hurt, and how much we should hurt others. Leave it to the wrath of God. He will repay. Instead, verse 20, to the contrary, vengeance is up to the Lord. Our response is, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him some to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Albert Barnes said this in his commentary. Let me just read it to you verbatim. Coals of fire are doubtless emblematical of pain. But the idea here is not that in so doing we shall call down divine vengeance on the man. But the apostle is speaking of the natural effect or result of showing such a person kindness. Burning coals heaped on a man's head would be expressive of intense agony. So the apostle says that the effect of doing good to an enemy would be to produce pain. But the pain will result from shame, remorse of conscience, a conviction of his evil conduct, an apprehension of divine displeasure which may lead to repentance. To do this is not only perfectly right, but it is desirable. If a man can be brought to reflection and true repentance, it should be done by doing good works. This is the one consistent teaching of the scriptures. By blessing, by doing good, by showing love in their eyes, you will heap burning coals. They will experience pain. In their hearts, they might not show it outwardly in their hearts. They will experience pain. Now the same heat that hardens clay melts butter. This pain might cause them to be all the more hardened towards you. Your righteousness might result in greater anger towards you, greater punishment and persecution. Well, let it be so. But if by God's grace and will, that pain caused their hearts like butter to melt and soften, and they will result in true faith and repentance and turning towards Christ. Paul summarizes, concludes at the end, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Two out of three ways we're to respond when we are 
persecuted for our faith. May God grant us grace. Grant us sincere faith. As we abide in Him to respond by loving our enemies, by loving those who are hurting us and praying for them. Let's pray. Lord, I'm sure for all of, for many of us, our memories are filled with times we have failed to do exactly this. Many times we have utterly failed to follow in your footsteps. How many times, because of our pride, we retaliated, we insulted back, we tried to shame them, we tried to be argue and be contentious to vindicate ourselves before man. Oh Lord, would you forgive us? Oh Lord, would you not count these sins against us? Forgive us for hindering the work of the gospel. Because of our poor conduct, Lord, would you grant us grace to be humble? Grant us to know that when people sin against us, we deserve to be treated in this way. When we're insulted and shamed, we deserve that insult. We Open shame belongs to us because of our many sins against you and against others. But Christ was without sin and without shame, was treated in this way and he did not retaliate. He did not threaten but submitted himself to the Father. How much more ought we follow in his footsteps? Oh Lord, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts, increase our faith, and help us to abide in you and obey these commands so that we will stand with a clear conscience in our prayers, in our closets, on our knees before you and say to you, we love all our enemies. We love every single one that have hurt us, tried to shame us and persecuted us, and we love them and we resolve to do good to them so that you would soften their hearts with the gospel of Christ and you be glorified in their salvation. Let First Peter 2 and 3, Matthew 5, Romans 12 go forth from our conduct as faithful Christians holding the cross of Christ high. Pray. Jesus, these things in Jesus' name, Amen.